School didn't teach us how to be good at love. So I created the Stubborn Love Podcast to help you navigate it. With my expertise in the marriage therapy biz, I'll share insights on topics like sex, money, and rock and roll. Um, I mean, navigating conflict and more. No matter what stage of relationship you're in right now, this podcast is for you. Every episode has actionable tips that will help you create a happier, healthier, and more fulfilling life with the people you love. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now and join me on this journey of love and learning for the stuff they didn't teach you in relationship school. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Kevin Payne, and gosh, he is just a jack of all trades. So he is the author of Your Life Lived Well, a social psychologist, a data scientist founder, most importantly, also a skydiver. Um, The reason why he's our special guest today is he has lived a life well And um, he is willing to share his experiences uh, being uh, someone who has lived with chronic illness, uh, as well as a a partner of someone who has lived with chronic illness. And he's going to share his story today with us. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Well, thank you so much for that gushingly optimistic introduction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is, is... what I failed at, but you know, you keep trying, and and sometimes what you're able to build on the other side is is very different than what you set out, and delightful in its own way. Yeah. So it can be better, even though that wasn't your expectation of where things happened. I. It was a very difficult growth process for me to let go of my expectations for life. Mm. Because naturally, I, I was someone who was like, okay, I'm going to build this, I'm going to do this thing. And I didn't realize until I had grown up and spent some time as a social scientist and lived through some difficulties so that I had kind of the analytic side of it and the experience side of it to realize that, relatively speaking, I had grown up in a privileged, supported environment. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I was the child of, of, you know, parents who very much wanted a big family, but mm-hmm. they only had me. Oh. And so I was so I was an only child and uh, lived. My father, when I was little, was, you know, working class. He was a truck driver and ascended through the ranks of management. And by the time he retired, then he had. A petition, you know, a position of responsibility over the entire region, you know, central region of the country for that company. So mm-hmm. he he went a long way from, you know, being born on the on the dirt farm in the Ozarks that his, you know, grandfather had homesteaded, and and of course I benefited from that, and I was a precocious kid in many ways, and I was I was. I read early. I was really attracted to math and science, and my parents were very keen on providing all the opportunities for that. Mm-hmm. I loved performing. I mean, my mom was a musician, and so I loved performing, and I loved acting, and so I grew up, you know, on the stage doing those things. You just did it all. You did the arts. You had the science, the math, the 
the psychology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, Oof. yeah, I, I, uh, and you know, I really love traveling and doing things. And so I backpacked through Europe the first time a summer in high school. And, and I had, not that I didn't have challenges, but mm-hmm. I didn't have obstacles in the way a lot of people have obstacles. Yeah. So I didn't really fully appreciate that until I got older and got some more education around mm-hmm. what everybody else was really facing. Right. And then also started going through the difficulties with my multiple sclerosis and my then wife's cancer and a lot of things that that you know others in my in my extended family were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, half of all Americans live with a chronic health condition, and twenty percent of us have five or more diagnoses. Wow. Really? That's that's jaw dropping when you think about it. Five or more. What what is it with? Why does it keep piling on? Well, a lot of them. There, I mean, you know, they're comorbidities, and and mm-hmm. and with many conditions, once things start going south in one way, then you're more susceptible to something else. Yeah. So, uh, if you if you become obese, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I did at one time. Normally, I've been very fit, but mm-hmm. I had, uh, we'll talk about it here, maybe I had an exacerbation in the 90s before I even realized that I was diagnosed with MS, and it was very confusing, and I became depressed, and I went from, you know, about 150 pounds to 260 in less than two years. That's a I went from 27-inch waist to a 46-inch waist. And then one morning I, I woke up and I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror. And for the first time, I really saw myself in a long time. And mm-hmm. my res- I thought, oh, my gosh, I look like the guy who ate Kevin. And so then I, yeah. I went back to my old habits and it took a long time, you know, but 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 in the next two years, I went down to 145 pounds mm-hmm. and I've, I've stayed there, you know, for 20 years. And so while that time during the two years, you had MS, but you didn't know that's what it was. Right? I did not know it. Right. My my first symptoms. Yeah. My first symptoms appeared in 1989. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of the symptoms that people get early on. I had some weird eye issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, my balance started going kind of crazy. I was I was extraordinarily tired, and you know it, it was very discouraging, and and I became depressed out of it. So I I went to the physician mm-hmm. after a couple of months of that, and he, you know, probably was just looking at a squishy set of symptoms from a young person. You know, I was just twenty years old, mm-hmm. and and jump, you know, who was in a demanding academic program mm-hmm. and jumped to the logical conclusion and said, oh, you're depressed. Here's some coping skills. No, not that. He sent me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, here's some drugs. And they didn't work. And so we tried a few of them. And then my depression was pronounced treatment resistant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there you go. Yeah. So in the meantime, then over the next, you know, dozen years or so, I would occasionally have these weird, unexplained, symptomatic incidents, and they would come and go, and it was relapsing, remitting MS, but nobody realized at the time. Finally, Mm -hmm. one morning in 2002, I woke up, and of course, by this time, I was back to my normal habits of regularly working out and that sort of thing, and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee, so I thought I'd just pinched a nerve lifting weights the day before, 
and didn't think anything about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, in, in a few days, it went away. But then it came back and it went away and it yeah. came back. And then other parts of my body started disappearing. And then finally, one day I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body was gone. No feeling. As if it wasn't even existing on you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I could move it fine, but, but no sensory input. Yeah. And so at that point, my then wife said, you're going to get this looked at. Was she helpful in, in trying to help you find out what's going on prior to oh, yeah. that point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was, I, I was a, a guy in my early thirties. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I was still living in that, you know, cloak of, of invulnerability that mm-hmm. that so many of us tend to exist in obliviously when we're young. Nothing can touch me. Yeah, I didn't. Well, it didn't even occur to me that it would be a health issue. You know, like a lot of young guys, I I didn't seek medical help for it. I mean, there was probably a decade in there between physicians' visits for me. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, I felt fine. You know, I was going through my life, I was doing my stuff, and and. I had some weirdness. I mean, I, you know, in 1989, I started itching all the time. And I swear, I just thought everybody itched all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a surprise. Yeah, those parathesias were just, you know, so I always feel like I'm being itched or tickled or shocked, mm-hmm. you know, with electric shocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always going on somewhere in my body. Uh, so I, I just had to learn to ignore those things. But it's it's like a background static in my life that I'm, uh, I'm kind of having to squint to see through. Yeah. You know, that's tough. I, it's what I got. I don't remember anything different yeah. from that. Yeah. It's been so long. I don't remember what mm-hmm. it was like. So you, you talked about how your, your wife even came to a point saying, you know, Hey, you got to get this checked out. You got to get this looked at, you know, what's going on with you. And what was that like? I mean, was it at all discussed in your relationship? You know, these challenges that you were going through or what was the dialogue like? Mm, you know, not, literally it was just, it was something that I would complain about every once mm-hmm. in a while. I was like, this is kind of weird. Yeah. I can't feel my arm. And and then I would just go on with my life because it was like, okay, mm-hmm. can't feel my arm. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so literally our conversation was, I can't feel anything but my, my arm and my head. She said, I'm putting my foot down. You're going to get that looked at. I said, okay, and did it. That was the conversation. For for someone who, who has been reflective in so many ways mm-hmm. uh, throughout my life i up until the point where i was forced to do it i never really reflected on my health well, why do you think it had to get to that point to being forced to finally take because because i was always i was always capable of you know with my body of doing what i wanted to do mm. so i was focused on what i was doing in my yeah. body yeah. i didn't start I didn't really focus. And that's the way most of us are. We don't pay attention to these things. Yeah, we don't think about it. It's a, mm-hmm. the, our, we think of our body as this car that we're driving along. And as long as we can get from point A to point B and do what we need to do, mm-hmm. we don't really think about it. Yeah. But then when it starts breaking down, 
You have to start thinking about it. And I was just like that. How did coming to the realization of your diagnosis affect you, affect your marriage when, when you were finally able to put a name to it? Well, it was it was kind of a gut punch uh, to get because it's it's not a pleasant diagnosis to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 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 no good, happy prognosis with MS. It's just not going to get better. Mm-hmm. And will likely get worse. What you are focused on is trying to help it get to the least worst as slowly as possible as you can. Mm. So that becomes a life goal. And that that changes a lot of your calculus about your life. Because yeah. no more five year plan. Yeah. I was when I was diagnosed, I was uh, you know, in the process of, I'd been a professor for 15 years. I'd been mm-hmm. teaching and, you know, not, not this time I'd been, there was what, eight or 10 years whenever I was first diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And, but I was planning on making a jump from an academic position to being a tech entrepreneur mm-hmm. because I'd had this technology that I was working on, you know, as a year. And I was, you know, I was a geek. I was a kid. I, I started programming in 1977 on an mm. IBM System 360 30 mainframe and a PET 2001 microcomputer. That's so amazing. I'd been, yeah, I'd been doing geeky stuff for a long time. Yeah. And I I was always really enamored with the way we can build technological tools to help support our quality of life. Mm-hmm. You know, and to, and to help study ourselves and provide a better window into how we see ourselves and, and what we're trying to do. So I really wanted to do that. But but then with with MS, I'm like, wow, how can you leave the safest job in the world as a tenure track academic to tech entrepreneur? So it, it caused you to become risk averse, finding out that news of, oh, I don't know. If yeah. I and out. as you may guess, I'm one of the least risk averse people who's still alive to walk around on this planet because you can be so risk, you know, so you can, you can be so uh, low in your risk tolerance that evolution just kind of takes care of you right there. Natural selection does its job. Right. But, but I'm, I'm just on the living side of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, I'm somebody who, you know, my, my idea of fun is flinging myself to the earth at terminal velocity every day. Not 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 just once as a bucket list item, but you know, in, in 2020, I logged 370 jumps. Gosh, while in the one world year. was sleeping, you were just going at it. Jumping out of an airplane for me is Tuesday, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's that's uh, and and you know, not to minimize it or anything, but it just it is remarkable what the human animal can become adapted to. Help me understand, you started the skydiving venture. This was after the diagnosis, correct? Yeah. So, okay. So, so quick, I guess you want a quick backstory on the whole skydiving in my life. Mm-hmm. Long, long story short, in the 70s, when I was a little kid, I saw a skydiver uh, at an air show and I was entranced with it because sure. it was the first time I'd saw, get to remember that that the rectangle parachutes, you know, the ram air parachutes yeah. that we now use, mm-hmm. those were new at that oh. time. Oh, wow. And I'd never seen, you know, it was everybody was jumping the big rounds and you just kind of fall to earth. But this guy, 
he was flying it around like a glider and whizzed right over us and landed on target. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I want to do that. Because I was a child of the Apollo era, and I loved the idea of everything up big. there, mm-hmm. you know? So in the 90s, when I was working on my doctorate, I started the training. And I didn't realize at the time that skydiving isn't a hobby. It's a lifestyle choice. It demands a lot of time. Just hanging out at the drop zone, waiting for the right weather conditions. And, you know, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it takes a lot. You're at the mercy of Mother Nature, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes she has no sense of humor. the drop zone that I started at was about two hours away from uh, where I lived and was, you know, going to school. So, you know, I'd have to drive and, and maybe I get to jump and I wouldn't and drive back and I'm Mm -hmm. trying to work on a dissertation and, and, you know, something had to go. And unfortunately at that time, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to give up on the doctorate for that. Yeah. So it kind of went by the wayside for a while. And then there was, you know, uh, 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 my my former wife and I got back together, and then there were suddenly kids. I mean, we went from like zero to two kids in, you know, mm-hmm. a, a blink of an eye. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and and then my career, and and so all of this stuff happened, and then it was health. Yeah. Right. That's a lot to balance. Yeah, there was a there was one incident that I remember vividly, and I, I talk about it in the book, where I was I was mowing the lawn. And this by this time, it's a few years into having MS that I know of. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, uh, heat sensitivity is a common concern with MS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if it, if it becomes warmer, uh, then it can exacerbate our symptoms. And some of us then, you know, for, for I've had heat sensitivity for many years before I started developing cold sensitivity. Uh, and then later, you know, now I've got cold sensitivity too. So typically, if it gets too cold for me, my legs will go weak and then they will go spastic and then I'm, I can't walk. Mm-hmm. That's what happens to my mother. She, you know, it can be 90 degrees outside and she's freezing and needs a jacket. Mm-hmm. But yeah. then heat sensitivity, if I get too hot, mm-hmm. what happens is my body starts disappearing. I start getting numb all over mm. and then I start getting weak. And so I've got this lassitude that comes over me. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, obviously skydiving is, a, is, an, exter- is an outdoor activity and, and coming back to it that was a whole bunch of set of challenges to to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm I'm mowing the lawn here a few years after and I thought I'm being respectful. I've got a pretty good sized lawn mm-hmm. and so instead of being able to do it in like 2 2 and a half hours like I would normally do it, I had to break it out up you know over like 3 or 4 days and yeah. do like one segment when it was shaded by the mm-hmm. trees right. and then do another segment when it was shaded Just and, not and so forth. Right. And so, so I'm out there pushing the mower up the, up the hill in the front yard. And I thought I was being respectful of my boundaries, but I wasn't. And then bam, it suddenly hits. I suddenly freeze up. I go spastic and 
this time it it felt like a herd of you know a swarm of electric hornets was stinging me all Oof. over and the pain was just overwhelming and i passed out and and thankfully the mower was one of those with when you let go of it it Good. stops right Good. or or it would have rolled back down the hill over me and mm. that would have really sucked um, yeah. so 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 then you know i couldn't have been passed out for more than a minute or so and my my vision came swimming back into view and i'm still paralyzed and i'm and i'm mm -hmm. laying there on the on the grass paralyzed looking up at this beautiful summer sky and and i had this errant thought this would be a beautiful day to skydive wow and then i and then i laughed at myself um you know sardonically right and and i thought you know i'm paralyzed here i'm never going to skydive again mm. i just can't do this so i gave up on that childhood dream yeah lost all hope huh mhm mm i did in in situations like that, you know, I'm sure it was probably scary for for your wife or for your kids at that time to, yeah. to find you, you know, in these situations of passing out or feeling all this pain. How how did that affect your relationship with them? Unfortunately, you would you would have to uh, talk to them about that mm -hmm. because they really refused to talk with me about it. So it wasn't something that was spoken about, huh? As if it, you know, we ignore it, it try not to it, let it exist. I would, I would like to, you know, yeah. I, I still would to this day, but, but I haven't had, I haven't had a meaningful conversation with my former wife since maybe 2012. Yeah. And I haven't had a meaningful conversation with my kids. I mean, my daughter, I haven't had a meaningful conversation with her for. I don't know, since maybe 2015 and my son's maybe 2017. Mm -hmm. They kind of took their cue from her. That That's her coping strategy. Right. We, we don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and that wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. but, but that was after she came back from almost dying from cancer. And it was literally so. So I guess you know. I guess you probably want me to fill you in on the other side of yeah. all this dynamic. Yeah. So how on. did you come to find that? And at what point in your MS did you find out about your former wife's cancer? Yeah. So so we're going along, and we are adapting to my MS mm -hmm. at this point. You know, as a family. And my it was kind of funny. My so when I took my when I when I was diagnosed, my kids were really small, and I, I came home and set the family around the kitchen table and explained everything that was going on. And one of my kids leaned into the other. And, you know, at this point, they're, what, two and almost five or so. So, you know, tiny. One of them leans over to the other. And and the, the other point about my life that you'll have to understand to, for this comment to be funny mm -hmm. is that... I was an undergraduate in Oxford in England during the Mad Cow Scare. So I lived there. And because I lived there during the Mad Cow Scare, to this day, 30 years later, the Red Cross still will not allow me to donate blood. Oh, wow. So it had become a joke in my family <laughs> that I would someday come down with variant Kirchfeld-Jacob disease. Oh, my Mad gosh. Cow. 
So I explain all this about this weirdness happening with my brain and mm. spinal cord. And one of my kids leans over to the other and in kind of a stage whisper says, Daddy got the cow. <laughs> so so in my family, my MS became Daddy's mad cow. Yeah, that's how we talked about it. Uh-huh. And when when I my uh, symptoms would be peaking on a day, people would say, dad's cow's really mad today. Mm. And then on, on one occasion, when my symptoms were really bad, and they didn't think I could hear them, I heard one of my kids say to the other, daddy's cow is really pissed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so it was it was aware, but what was it like for it to be talked about in that kind of way, but, but not really directly, you know, related to, oh, daddy's MS, not mad cow, not ha-ha joke? You, you know, I uh, I encourage that, I yeah. think, in a lot of ways. Like a coping way? Yeah, it's, it's, there's, there is a tendency in the MS community for people with MS to refer to it as the monster. Mm. With a capital M and a capital S within the word, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's easy to think of this disease as a monster. Oh, yeah. But the problem with thinking of it as a monster is that if you frame your life in a as a battle with a monster, you will never win. What point did you realize that? What was it? Early. Um and, and so, you know, I embraced it. So instead of a monster, mm -hmm. I've got a cow. She's big, she's bulky, she's smelly, she gets in the way, <laughs> but you can handle a cow. Yeah. And you, and, and, you know, you can't necessarily handle a monster. So yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is part of the framing device that, that I've used to help me keep it in its place. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's not serious. It's not that it's not something that affects every decision that I make, but it's something that fundamentally I can cope with. I can handle. I can accommodate in ways and still get what I want done. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so uh, during this time, so from before I was diagnosed through the early years of my diagnoses, my then wife was dealing with headaches and they they increasingly got to be really bad headaches. So when I took a new academic position, we moved to a new city. I w this time I was like, yeah, you've really got to get those looked at. And so she went and and our GP referred her to a migraine specialist mm -hmm. and the migraine specialist said, yeah, it's migraine and started trialing different drugs. And she trialed 20 different drugs in two years and none of them seemed to work. And the headaches got worse. And these, these, you know, aren't normal headaches. These are sweaty, vomitous, collapsed, passed out on the floor yeah. kinds of headaches. How did you two manage that for the two years of her trying that different medication? Oh, it was it was tough. I mean, yeah. it, it was really tough. And and of course, part of it was because okay, so when when you are in those circumstances, 
it's overwhelming and you you you're very cognizant of your limited resources mm-hmm. and so your inclination is to say okay i'm going to just keep my head down and i'm going to power through this and i know some things are falling apart around me in my life but we're going to get through to the other side of it and then we're going to take care of that stuff mm-hmm. and that's okay if it's for a week or a month or two months but when when you judge incorrectly and it turns out that this is something that's going to go on for a decade then by the time you get around to it it's going to be too late mhm it's going to be too decayed mhm and and unfortunately that was what happened now there was another exacerbation in there that caused uh, which I'll get to in a minute that altered my thinking on things because I wouldn't have made that decision under normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she's getting worse and now her blood pressure is getting out of control. I mean like 243 over 158. Yeah. Even with blood pressure medication that's that's dosed for a man twice her size. Jeez. So nothing's working. Yeah. So nothing is working. She's getting worse. We end up in the ER the day after Christmas, mm. about you know eleven years ago now, and <clears throat> they admit her and work on her and do lots of tests, and then a few days later they say, "Okay, she's got to go home and rest. Take it easy. We've given her these medications that are going to keep her alive. We think until." You can meet with, and they and they send us home with a with a an appointment with a urologic oncologist at the local, uh, you know, university hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 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 when you get an oncology appointment, that's a sobering appointment. You know that shit's about to hit the fan. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were we went into that meeting, and that was two days before Christmas that year. And he walked in and no social niceties, no prologue. He looked at her and said, it's a pretty bad cancer. Mm. And if it weren't for the holiday, I would admit you immediately and you would be in surgery this afternoon. And, and, And this is a direct quote. He said, I will let you have the weekend to celebrate the holiday and put your affairs in order. Mm. What is that like to hear as a husband? I'm going to break up just now, you know, thinking about it. Hearing that for me was so much more devastating than hearing my own MS diagnosis. Yeah, it was much harder to hear, huh? Oh, infinitely. I mean... You know, I can I can talk about my diagnosis and joke and and here it's you know, it's a it's a decade ago and you know, we're not even together anymore and I will choke up just trying to talk about it now. So yeah, it was it was yeah, it was devastating. 
So we did, and we went back Monday morning, and we had the surgery, and it was supposed to be a three-hour surgery, and it ended up being five and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there alone. You know, my 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 parents took the kids, and you know, for the mm -hmm. weekend after Christmas, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting there in the waiting room alone, trying to get some work done to distract myself, and and just waiting, yeah, for the word. And, and so eventually they, they come back and, you know, that, and, and said, okay, we've got it. And, and so they did the biopsy on it and the neurologist came back in like the next day or so and said her kidney was 9.3 centimeters long. It was an 8.8 .8 centimeter tumor. Mm. Uh, it was very late stage three. It had been growing in her body unnoticed for 14 years. Yeah. And now, and, and this is really weird too, because she had a history of endometriosis and it had a couple of surgeries. So people have been digging around and scanning her abdomen for years beforehand. And, and nobody had noticed. And, and he told us at that time, if we would have not have taken it then, you would not have made it to Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that you that really drives home the impact of this mm -hmm. is that she was raised by a single mother, and she was an only child, and they were extraordinarily close, and and you know she loved her mother dearly. The day that we took her in for surgery. Mm -hmm was almost exactly 10 years to the day that she sat with her mother and mm. watched her die of cancer. That's incredibly hard. Yeah. So, so you were in your own grieving process. How, how were you even able to be there as a support for her going through all of this, you know, scary, terrifying territory? Well, eventually she would say that uh, I didn't do a very good job of it because we're not together anymore. Um, but, but I mean, early on, I, 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 we'd both agree that, that I did well. And early on, she did well for me, yeah. too. Yeah. So what changed? Well, year after year after year of the grind mm -hmm. and her almost dying in that way. And then, right about the time that she had that incident, I had the worst exacerbation that I've ever had. It was a massive right frontal temporal lesion. So you know what's happening there. That's impairing my cognition, my decision making, my planning yeah. ability. It's it's a it's it's impairing my my emotional regulation. It's you know, I'm not even stamping memories correctly. Yeah. And there's and there are parts of my my history through that time that I have very sketchy memories of. Yeah. So so you know, she comes out the other side and I'm seriously impaired mm. at that point. Yeah. And 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 that exacerbation 
you know, understandably triggered a really deep depression. Yeah. Because I'm a brain guy. I make my living with my mind. Right. And and suddenly it wouldn't work. Oh, so so do you like science fiction literature at all? Uh sometimes. Do, do you know there's an old there's a story from it was it was, it was a short story then turned into a novel from the sixties called Flowers for Algernon. Oh, I don't know that one. Okay, as as a therapist, you want to read this because the story is about uh, a man who is developmentally challenged mm-hmm. and undergoes a clinical trial to massively increase his IQ. Oh, wow. And Algernon is the mouse in the story that underwent the procedure first. Mm-hmm. Okay? So... Without digressing too much, what happens in the story is he becomes a super genius and then he loses it slowly. And and the entire book Mm -hmm. is written in terms of his diary entries. So it begins with poor grammatical construction and misspellings and things like that. Yeah. And and you can you can see his cognitive increase and decline through how he's expressing himself and Mm -hmm. the fears that he has. So when I was a kid and I read that story, because it's just devastating because in the end, he, he, he remembers that he used to be smart. Yeah. And and that people used to treat him differently. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was the most terrifying horror story I had ever heard in my life. <sighs> so, so as a kid, right. my biggest fear was losing my mind. My second biggest fear was that I wouldn't handle it well. Mm-hmm. And my third biggest fear, and you know, my my then wife and I had a long, colorful. We met in high school, and we had many years of on again, off again, on again, off again mm-hmm. before we finally settled down and had a family. Uh, and, and, and my third biggest fear was all that would happen and she would leave again. All these things. And all of those things indeed happened. Wow. I lived through my worst conceivable scenario. Hmm. So how did you get through it? I wanted to take a minute and provide a disclaimer that there is a trigger warning as we do mention the topic of suicide within the next part of this episode. Please do what is best for you and you may skip over to the next portion if you need. If you need any assistance, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 8255, or you can reach out to the crisis text line and text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 for free 24-7 crisis counseling. Take care and be well. So how did you get through it? Well, I almost didn't. I, you know, to be really frank, I mean, I, yeah. that, there was, there was a point where, where when we have discussions of suicide in our culture, mm-hmm. we, 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 
we conceive of it as this emotionally overwrought decision. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are some, some cases where that is definitely the way it happens. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've been doing research on this for over 100 years, and we know that there are multiple types of suicide mm-hmm. and there are multiple paths to getting to that point. And one of them happens when you have become so emotionally overwhelmed for so long that you are numb. You are past emotion. Yeah. And you are so bereft of hope that you literally can't see a path from the life you are now in to the life, you know, to any kind of life that you are interested in having. Even if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, what about this? Or look on the bright side or, right? Yeah, you look look on the bright side, you want to choke them. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> so, I'm I'm normally a very optimistic guy. Yeah, I, I have to be, but but I was to I was to that point where I could calmly rationally see a world without me in it, and not recoil at the idea, at you know, and say, yeah. That would probably be better for everyone I care about mm-hmm. because I'm not going to be able to achieve the things that I want to be able to achieve in my life. I mean, so, what is the point of living if we can't have that, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, less about collecting experiences. It's, it's experiences that are important. Mm-hmm. And if you look at every single retrospective study that we've done from, you know, like septuagenarians and octogenarians and nonagenarians looking back on their lives, you know, it's, it's all about the experiences. People don't care about their stuff. They don't mm-hmm. care about their achievements. They care about how they felt in the moment. And the things that make us feel better are experiences with other people. They're experiences where we learn things and do new things and grow mm-hmm. and, and you know, interrogate our edges. They're experiences where we get to display our competency. And when you are so impaired physically and mentally that you don't see a way to Mm-mm. do those things. Right. And, you know, by this time I'm alone and my, my, uh, you know, my relationship with, with my former wife and my kids had completely deteriorated. Right. And it's a real and, high risk factors. Yeah, and this is and this is gonna sound really shallow to some of your listeners, but the final trigger was a a month after my son left my house, because he had been primarily living with me mm-hmm. and and just saw her some. So about a month after that happened, my beloved Akita Nemo passed away horrifically. Oh. I, he, he had bloat. And if you know what bloat is, anybody with big dogs listening is just gotten wild-eyed and ugh. Oh. Because what ha- it's, it's gastric torsion. So with these big dogs with big chests, mm-hmm. sometimes what happens is their stomach detaches and it flips over inside them and it completely knots up their lower intestines. That's awful. So 
this happened really late on a Sunday night. So the only place I could go, there was a, there was a, a 24 hour emergency vet a few mm -hmm. miles away. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I noticed what was happening, you know, he couldn't even walk. So yeah. I picked him up. You know, it's a 120 pound dog. I got to lug him downstairs into the garage, into the truck and, you know, get him in there. And I'm driving like a hundred miles an hour down the freeway yeah. with the, with the vets on the phone saying, I'm coming in hot, be ready. And they were waiting there with a stretcher and got him in and did everything they possibly could. And, you know, he, he died right mm -hmm. there, you know, with me. And that was the last thing that I was hanging on to, mm. except for a tiny little black rescue kitty. Yeah. <laughs> that was, but that was, I mean, you know, cause, cause having the dog, that was, that was a thing that got me up every morning and, you know, feeding him and taking him out and having to see to those needs. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that was like my last real anchor. And if we don't have anchors, yeah, let the ship sail. Mm hmm. Mm. So you're still so we got here. pretty dark and pretty grim. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm still there. Yeah. And 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 you know how did I do that? I fortunately, because of my training, I was able to be an external observer and mm. on myself and say, okay, look, I understand what is happening to me. And then see one of the reasons why it was why it got so bad to begin with is when I had that exacerbation, right. my the neurologist I had at that time totally botched it. And he oh. didn't even mention that it was going on. So I didn't realize that that's what I was dealing with until I got I finally got frustrated with that neurologist and switched neurologists like oh. two or three years later. Yeah. And so, so it takes a second opinion or, or doctor shopping to, to really mm -hmm. try to find good treatment, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was a, there was a long time in there where I'm like, I'm losing my mind. Yeah. Cause you know, there's right frontal temporal damage. Those that's like dementia kinds of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, and, so, uh, you know, I'm like, and, and, and I couldn't communicate very well right. because aphasia is often a part of that. Mm -hmm. And so I was having, you know, uh, difficulty forming my, my thoughts into sentences. Mm -hmm. So long story short, this is my way of saying after she came back with the near death trauma of almost dying in the same way she watched her mother die. She's massively traumatized. I had been, and that triggered a lot of old trauma. Yeah. You know, that she had, that she had been, that she had dealt with successfully mm -hmm. uh, through therapy mm -hmm. and stuff years before. And that we had talked through a lot, but Suddenly I'm back. She's, she's back there and she's struggling and she's doing that. But I had been neglecting my symptoms for a lot of years. And then I had this exacerbation and suddenly I can't communicate and I can't do, and my emotions are all over the place and I'm getting really angry for no apparent reason. And I have no explanation and I can give no explanation. Mm-hmm. 
And this is when she really needs it to help with her recovery right. and reentry into life again. Right. And it's like it's not even you who's really there. Yeah. And I'm drowning over mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. in all my symptoms. And and I get no help because she, she can't be a lot of help at this point because yeah. she's got her own stuff that she has to do. And for both of us, what little we have, we're devoting to the kids because the mm-hmm. kids are still little at right. this time. Yeah. And let me ask, was there anyone there to support you two, like friends or family or even colleagues? Well, certainly we have friends and, and they are, you know, but, but we were all in the same age, yeah, right? With young kids and stuff like that. And, and so not so much. And then, you know, her, her mother had passed away. Her father didn't live nearby. Mm-hmm. My, my parents certainly helped as 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 much as they could. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, but but they can only do so much. Right. 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 Mm. So, uh, you know, it was just a perfect storm of, for for a relationship that that was truly so loving and so cherished, and that we had been through a lot to get to a point where we could build a life together. Mm-hmm. We just got hit with a perfect storm of all this stuff. You can then hit break. Yeah, and then in the meantime, I'm not admitting to myself how much I'm impaired. So I'm still moving forward with my jumping from the safest job in the world to the life of a tech entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And my brain blows up and the company blows up mm. as well. I couldn't handle it. Yeah. So so it was a lot. It was it was a lot. <laughs> so you um have overcome a lot and and we talked a little bit about resilience, you know, before we we had gotten on here and um why don't you tell the listeners how you came to to write your book? Um you know, what sparked that? Yeah. <clears throat> um so When I have problems, my go-to coping skill is to turn to the science. That's just the way I've always been. And, and, you know, as, as a science academically, I, I focused on, you know, I had two areas of specialization. One was as a research methodologist and data scientist. Mm -hmm. So how we study people. And then the other was, you know, from the 90s, I started doing research on various aspects of the question, why do some people succeed and other people fail under mm-hmm. difficult circumstances? Mm-hmm. Now, talk about a an apt topic yeah. to have already been interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so, so I, as my, I, I had more experience living with the condition, I, I started shifting my focus naturally to, well, how do you live well when you're always going to be sick? Mm-hmm. When you and, have this force pushing you down and you have no control mm-hmm. over it, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, my, my idea was I turned myself into a guinea pig. So I started collecting data about myself 
mm-hmm. every day. And, you know, there were like 85 different variables I was collecting every day on myself about, uh, you know, physical and behavioral and cognitive and emotional and environmental and social circumstances around me. And I started building longitudinal models and, and seeing what I could predict out of these things and trying to understand, well, here's what my leading indicators are. And if I, you know, if this is happening, then I'm probably going to have a bad time of it in the next day or month or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I started doing that. And, you know, then I was a methodologist. I, I, I know you can't generalize from an inner one. And I was mm-hmm. fundamentally more interested in being able to say something about this life circumstance than being able to just help myself mm-hmm. because it's about, you know, it's about when I've always felt when being able to get that much education kind of incurs a responsibility to do something meaningful with it and give back because mm-hmm. that's, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable that we live in a society that allows some of us to get that deep and geeky and wonky yeah. and stuff, yeah, you know, and and I was very mindful of that privilege. So I started, you know, I interviewed hundreds of people. I surveyed thousands. I built a scraper that went out on the web and collected millions of data points. I did mm. meta-analyses and pooled analyses over thousands of studies and, uh, you know, just trying to look at this answer because there was mm-hmm. something about the existing research that bugged me. And and not that it's bad. There's a lot of really great research, but, but most research focuses on a particular diagnosis. Mm. So they're looking at MS patients or they're looking at people with diabetes or they're mm-hmm. looking at, you know, or, or they're focused on a particular kind of intervention you know, whatever it is. And that's yeah. fine. That's great research that needs to be done. What I was interested in is, are there shared similarities among yeah. people living with something really bad in their bodies that's probably not going to go away? Mm-hmm. Why are these people coming out on top is what you mm-hmm. were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's what I did, and I and I spent you know a decade doing that and and building, you know, I, my company offer we offer twenty four different seminars on on different aspects of this, and it's not just for uh, people with chronic conditions, mm-hmm. but also for loved ones and caregivers, and for medical, therapeutic, health and wellness, and social support professionals mm. who have to not only better serve those people, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, you're being faced with, when, when you're engaging in that work, you're being faced with lasting and repeated secondary trauma. Yes. And, and you need better tools for dealing with that as well. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of part and parcel of that. And, and so that's what I built. That's what the book is about. And, you know, that's what, and then in, in, you know, late next year, uh, we should have the app come out that is actually the technology that allows people to, because here's the thing, Mm -hmm. most of the problems that we are living with are not medical. They are 
figuring out the cognitive and emotional and behavioral and mindset changes that you need to implement and stick with in mm-hmm. your life mm-hmm. so that you can adapt to it and still get what you want out of your life. Yeah. How do I respond to this event, experience, etc.? Exactly. Yeah. Well, if you look at the research, there's about 150 ways to change a behavior. Mm-hmm. And all of them work for someone, but only some of them will work for you. Yep. And how do we know? Yeah. So that's what the technology is oh, about. It's about awesome. profiling a person and saying, with your problem in this circumstance, statistically, here's the most likely thing you can do to move you in the direction you want to move. That's amazing. And then monitor that. Yeah. Yeah. And then monitor that. And if you're not doing according to what we would expect, shift you to the second most likely option Mm -hmm. for someone like you. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about Mm. getting that out there. But, uh, you know, right now it's focusing on getting the book launched and all that. But I've been building those models since, you know, 2009, 2010. Yeah. Had a lot of research. You've had a lot of time. So I'm Mm -hmm. really excited to hear about that app. We'll we'll have to stay in touch and you'll have to keep me up to date when that launches. Um, Be glad to. Yeah. As we uh, come to a close today, is there anything else that that you would want listeners to know who may be struggling with a chronic illness or or have a loved one uh, that is struggling with that? You know, there's... Uh, uh, get my book, Your Life Lived Well. Yep. It comes out on February 7th, your shameless plug. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was the thing, you know, I, 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 we, we've ended up talking mostly about my story here. And the, the educator part of me was like really wanting to get into some of the ideas that I talk about in the book. There's a whole chapter on relationships mm-hmm. in the book. And, you know, I was wanting to get into some of these really important ideas that we can use to better frame how we are are engaging in our relationships Mm -hmm. so yeah i was you know i was i was planning on talking about like the difference between gift and exchange type relationships and the social interpenetration model and and you know shared fate and and identity building and risk tolerance okay so here's Here's one thing. Okay. If I'm going to, so I'm. I know that you are really familiar with the Gottman's research mm-hmm. on on relationships, yep. and you know they make a beautiful distinction in their in their research that trust and respect are the foundation yep. of you know these relationships. And I like to think about that foundation is like every relationship is like a a bridge that. You carry, you have on one side, you know, imagine a couple of planks and you carry one side and somebody else carries the other. Mm -hmm. And some of those have to be really big, robust bridges and others are like really thin and and, because they don't have to support very much. But, Mm -hmm. and and we put all of our experiences on there and, and so forth. Well, I think that there is a third characteristic that goes in that foundation that we don't talk about Mm -hmm. that is fundamentally as important as trust and respect what is it and i say that it's hope Uh. and that if you think of hope as your belief that the relationship's future Mm -hmm. 
that was my Ikea. Uh, <laughs> will will be as good or better on average than any of your alternatives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's hope. So so just like in a relationship, like when trust starts decaying, you know that that causes that person to start becoming a critic, yeah, and it gets responded to with with defensiveness, right? And and you lack of respect, you get contempt, and the other person starts stonewalling. Well, when we start lacking hope, we start distancing ourselves from the relationship. We start disengaging, and the other person starts responding mm-hmm. with a loss of planning and maybe a fear of missing out and that sort of thing. And you start setting up this really ugly chase dynamic yeah. within the relationship. Yeah. And and so I you know, I would argue and in the book I argue that hope is a third dimension in the foundation of relationships that is just as fundamental as trust and respect. Mm-hmm. And and part of what's going on with hope is shared risk tolerance. So like as you may guess, you know, I jump out of an airplane all the time. Right. I've got a, a really high risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. And in many relationships, people have very different risk tolerances. Right. But if you're not put in a circumstance that tests it, that doesn't matter. Exactly. Right? But then when you get pushed in a chronic illness, now suddenly I have this big risk that I'm carrying around that I can't get away from that potentially affects our sense of shared fate mm-hmm. as a couple mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she can get away from. Yeah. And if hope disintegrates, the other alternative looks better. Mm. So anyway, yeah, that was one that. like kind of geeky point yes. that, that I wanted to get in there. Cause I think that's, a part of relationship dynamics that we don't address enough. No, I and I think you're totally right when I see couples in my office and, you know, they can talk about what their love used to be, but if they don't think that the relationship can can work in the future, you know, what is the point of even coming to see me? How can I help you if you don't have that hope? So, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you really yeah. gave listeners a cliffhanger to go out and get your book. And um, you well, said it was so. February 7th is when it comes out? February 7th is out. If, if you go to yourlifelivedwell.co right now, you can get a 100-page free preview and, and download that. And that will give you uh, some of my story and uh, you know some substantive stuff about how we can think differently about health and illness and healthcare. Yeah. And, and what some other possibilities are. Yeah. So, and, and then, you know, I will update you and you'll get cool stuff as you go along and, and you will know the instant it is out Awesome. on February 7th. Good, good. So, well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and, um, you know, helping us learn a little bit more what it's like to live with chronic illness, to take care of someone with chronic illness and how it impacts your life. So really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you and what you're trying to do with this podcast. So thank you so much for having this conversation. Of course. All right. Take care. And until next time. Bye.